For now, we will connect with somebody that hasn't been on this radio station in 15 years, hasn't been on the radio in about a week, but somebody who is as tied in to all things related to the Vancouver Canucks, one of the hardest working members of the sports media here in Vancouver. It is my pleasure to welcome onto the show Jeff Patterson, host of the VanCast podcast that you can find on The Athletic, Canucks reporter, and a friend of mine, a nice, uh, great colleague. Jeff, uh, welcome back to CKNW, my friend. Thanks, John. It's a long time, but uh, yeah, excited to be back. Good to talk to you, and it's a game day for the Vancouver Canucks, and looking forward to seeing what they can do about uh, following up the performance we saw on Saturday night. Indeed, yes, and uh, the, the game tonight and the game that we saw over the weekend, I want to just hold that conversation for now because, Jeff, I feel like maybe the bigger storyline with the Vancouver Canucks right now is something that we saw happen over the weekend when the Canucks owner, Francesco Acolini, decides to go on Twitter and has a has a little thread where he's talking about how it's a unique year. Of course, the team is disappointed by the poor start. But ultimately, the main takeaway from this is that he has full confidence in the general manager, general manager Jim Benning, uh, the head coach Travis Green, and the group as a whole. What was your reaction when you saw this particular Twitter thread being posted by the owner? Well, I applauded him for speaking out because I have long been in the camp that believes that Canuck fans, uh, people that have lined the Aquilini family's pockets with millions and millions of dollars over the years, deserve to hear from the owner from time to time. I don't need him to be Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys or Mark Cuban of the Mavericks or you know somebody that's always seeking a microphone. But I think a couple of times a year, hockey fans in this market, as loyal and as passionate as they are, they deserve to hear from the owner. And so... I applauded him for speaking out. I wish it had been in a different format, that he mm-hmm. would have been willing to take questions from the media because there are a lot of questions swirling around his hockey club right now, but but that's not who he is or how he chooses to do it. And so on Twitter, it's a one-sided conversation. We hear his side of things, but there is no way to poke and prod at some of the things that he said. So I applaud Francesco Aquilini for at least speaking out so that we have a sense of what's on his mind. I felt it was a week late. I I think it would have been better served a week earlier after they had lost twice in Montreal and followed that up with two dreadful performances in Toronto. And the heat was really on the organization then. And look, Travis Green is paid to coach this team and to coach them to victories. And part of his job is to deal with the media as well. But I sort of feel like he has been hung out to dry on a couple of fronts. One, he's looking for a contract extension. Mm -hmm. And he's the guy that on a daily basis had to answer all of these questions about his hockey club and why it couldn't win and, and, you know, why it was so porous defensively. He wasn't getting any support from the management. He wasn't getting much support from ownership. And so I I think that some of, if Francesco Aquilini was trying to take some of the heat off the organization, you know, a couple of hours before a hockey night in Canada game, I think he would have been served better served to have done it a week earlier, whatever the case, he chose Saturday night to do it. And I don't agree with all of the reasons that he gave for the struggles for this hockey club. When you go back, and I won't go word by word, but this is all we have to go on. When he says very little training camp, they had a 10-day training camp. Mm. They had a longer training camp this year than they would under normal circumstances. And then he says no preseason and a few practice days. The schedule has been an issue for the Canucks. Uh, They've played more games than anybody in the National Hockey League. But All the other teams had no preseason as well. So, you know, I just don't think that you can use those and throw them out there as explanations and talk about a new group needs chemistry. 
Well, the Montreal Canadiens have a bunch of new faces, including Tyler Toffoli. You've probably heard of him. (laughs) Uh, You know, they don't seem to be having chemistry issues either. So, you know, this is kind of where I do take issue with the owner just lofting this out there on his Twitter account, and there's no real way to push back. And then, of course, it's sort of right out of that, you know, ownership manual when you're trying to take the pressure off your group, you know, blame the media, right? And he went down that road as well, and I'd like to push back there because – uh, Francesco Aquilini and the Vancouver Canucks certainly have issues right now. Uh, the media should be way down the list, way down the list. He may not like the coverage that his team is getting, but his team hasn't been particularly good this year, and I don't mm-hmm. think that they've been managed all that well. And he could have taken away a lot of the uncertainty uh, had he committed to his, like, you know, he commits to his coach now, but he had the chance to show the commitment to the coach by giving him a contract extension at the start of the season and make that storyline go away. So. Uh, lots to get to. Bottom line is, we've seen this a million times. The vote of confidence, sometimes from the owner, can also be a kiss of death. Right. Uh, but it did. T- it turned out to be a statement game, quite literally, on Saturday. The owner made his statement, and then the team backed it up with uh, arguably their best performance of the season. Yeah, to your notion about blaming the media. If only I was a better skater, Jeff, then maybe yep. the Canucks wouldn't have lost six games in a row. If only. I clearly right. need to practice up a little bit here. But uh, to, to your point about this maybe being like the kiss of death, while some have pointed out that in years past, uh, Francesco Aguilini did a similar thing with Mike Gillis, and then months down the road, Mike Gillis uh, ultimately was pushed out the door. And Travis Green the great point that you uh, pointed out uh, made out for us he's right now on an expiring deal the last deal of uh, sorry the last year of his contract so it feels like these kind of ring hollow if you're asking me yeah i mean i go back to the point that they had the opportunity if they truly believe that travis green is the coach that they want now and moving forward Nothing's going to change. They're not going to sell a ticket this season. So I get that it's a financial hit for the ownership group of the Vancouver Canucks. But I also think that there were ways to structure uh, a contract extension for Travis Green Mm -hmm. that would have seen him maybe, you know, just bump his salary a little for next season. And and then you could back in it the way they did with some of the player contracts that they have signed here so that when they are selling tickets, when they've got revenue flowing again, that it makes sense for everybody. Instead, you know, that just signals instability from the top down when you leave the coach flapping in the wind in a Canadian market like this one. Of course, it's going to be a storyline, and it continues to be a storyline. And, you know, ownership, and again, we don't hear from the owner enough, so we don't know. I mean, he can't be thrilled that he's paying Louis Erickson $6 million this season and still on the hook for, for some of that contract next year. And, you know, you look at the fourth line they iced the other night, and, and to their credit, to those players' credit, Erickson beat over 10 and actually played reasonably well, but $11.5 million on a fourth line in the National Hockey League in a flat cap era, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. And so uh, if ownership isn't happy with the way Jim Benning has spent the money, you know, we don't know that. But at the same time, there were some ways to get out from some bad contracts in the offseason if ownership was willing to approve a buyout, and they didn't. And so Jim Benning, and I'm not here to defend Jim Benning's moves when it comes to contracts because there have been many, uh, many poor ones signed, and, and I think you're seeing the proof of that. Uh, in the lineup the Canucks are icing these days and, and beyond that to the record that they've got at uh, 7-11 and 11 now through 18 games. So uh, ownership could have supported the general manager. Ownership certainly could have supported the coach a little better. And here we are 18 games into the season where the owner felt the need on Saturday to take to Twitter to profess his faith in the group that he's got. And we'll see if you know, you heard some of the players say they weren't even aware of it, that they just went out and felt it was time to play better than they had. 
And they did a good job of that. And so we'll see if there is any impact, if this, you know, brings the temperature down in any way. But, you know, when I look at the statements that the owner made, again, I don't think he can get away cherry-picking the draft picks that have worked out. And he pointed to Nils Hoaglander, who has been terrific for the Vancouver Canucks, a 20-year-old that comes in as a raw rookie uh, under these circumstances and has performed remarkably well. But you can't just lump Hoaglander in with Pedersen, Hughes, and Besser and ignore Jake Furtanen and Ole Levy and some of the other picks that haven't worked out the way that the Canucks had hoped, uh, certainly when they were selected where they were in the draft uh, way back when. So, again, I'll repeat myself, but that's the problem with a Twitter statement and not the owner stepping up and being willing to, to take a few questions from time to time uh, from the media that cares about this hockey club and just acts on behalf of the fans and wants to ask some of those questions and instead, uh, we're left, you know, that's the other thing, too. When ownership doesn't speak, sometimes we're left to speculate. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where we are in all of this, trying to read uh, this man's mind. And so all we have to work on are the tweets. There was some information in there, but, you know, I, I would have liked a little clarification as well. Well, to your point about cherry picking the draft picks, as I've been told, never let the truth get in the way of a good take. And maybe that's kind of what was at play here in conversation with Jeff Patterson. He is the host of the VanCast podcast that you can find with The Athletic. And Jeff is on the line now. Uh, Jeff, as you mentioned earlier, the Canucks had a statement performance against the Flames over the weekend. Maybe, just maybe, they happened to catch Calgary on a bad night. Maybe they didn't sleep very well. Who knows? But that performance was promising. And the timing might make sense because of what we saw sort of explained in the previous segment with the owner uh, showing a vote of confidence for the GM and head coach. What were your major takeaways from that particular game, though? Well, they were full value for the win, but it sort of underscores just how hard this group has to work to to get a victory. And they mm. snap a six-game losing streak, obviously. They had played a little bit better in the previous games, and sometimes you'll see that at the end of a losing streak, that a team will play well enough to win and not get the job done, but you can see the signs are there. And so... It looks like they've sorted out some of their structural issues defensively. The problem now, John, is that they have six goals in their last four games. Mm-hmm. Two of the goals the other night came from defensemen. Hey, they'll take goals from wherever, but Brandon Sutter was the only forward to score. He scores into an empty net. You go back the last four games, those six goals, Brock Besser has a pair, Elias Pettersson has one, and Brandon Sutter into an empty net. Those are the only forwards to score in the last four games and Besser is the only forward to score at even strength. Like most of the game is played at even strength, so you've got to be able to to find a way to put a puck in the net. Now Jacob Markstrom was terrific. The Canucks knew he would be. They're going to see him again tonight, and they'll probably see him again on Wednesday as they go to Calgary for a fourth straight game against the Flames. So, you know, some of the good signs from Saturday night were just how effective they were in uh, controlling the play and out shooting the Flames badly. And when Calgary got power plays. The Connect penalty kill I thought was terrific the other night, and that's an area they really have improved since the early part of this season. Calgary had one shot on three power plays, so give the penalty killers some credit there. And now it's a question of, can the Canucks best players find their offensive game? And you look at Bo Horvat doesn't have a point in the last four. He has two points in the last 10 games. Bo Horvat is a better player than that. We saw that in the playoff bubble last year. They got him the offensive winger that he was looking for in Niels Hoaglander. And yet, for whatever reason, the point production just hasn't been there for the captain since early in the season. And JT Miller has been hot and cold all season long after starting the season in COVID protocol. And he, too, has gone four games without a point right now. 
you know, these are guys that the Canucks need to step up. So tonight's another opportunity for that, and we'll see if their best players can get the job done. But it's a tough way to win in the National Hockey League if you're averaging a goal and a half over a, a four-game stretch. Yeah, absolutely. 3-1 the final score against the Flames uh, over the weekend, but the game was a lot closer than the final score says. Uh, the last two goals from the Canucks, including the game winner, didn't come until much later into the third period. So it, it tells you that this team is struggling and starving for goal scorers. You mentioned JT Miller. Uh, very Jekyll and Hyde. And, and it's very curious because he was a standout player last season over a point per game. And it seems like he's still capable of doing some special things in the offensive zone, Jeff. But it feels like his all around 200 foot game just it's it, maybe it's fallen off a little bit. I, I can't explain it. Yeah, I mentioned the COVID protocol to start the season. Mm-hmm. So he didn't come shooting out of the gates necessarily. But come on, he's 15 games in. The team is uh, 18 games, or at least tonight is their 18th game. So uh, he can't use that anymore. Uh, we've had more questions. There's been more red flags around JT Miller already this season than there were at any time last year when he led this team in regular season scoring and was tied with Elias Pettersson in the playoff bubble and his motor was always running and it just it looks like he's been in a bad mood since day one and I don't know if it was uh, the COVID protocol that set him off. Whatever the case, he means too much to the Vancouver Canucks and, and you saw a player who uh, raised the bar for his own performance, was given an opportunity to be a frontline, top-line player here last year, and he made the most of it. Now, was he going to replicate that? Perhaps not. Maybe we could have expected a little bit of a step back, but there was such consistency in his game last year, and that hasn't been there. And he was such a big part of a power play that was fourth best in the NHL last season, and it's kind of scuffling along as well. Hasn't been a difference maker on any night this season and that's, that surprises me because the component parts are all there. And I, I thought that, okay, even if they struggle to score at even strength, this power play was a, an absolute game changer for them last season. All those guys are back. Now maybe teams are on to them a little bit. Maybe they have to mix it up and look for some different options. Whatever the case, uh, JT Miller was such an offensive driver, spent so much of his time in the offensive zone last season. And that's been a big part of the issue is that he and that lotto line have just been defending way too much and, So, again, the team looks like it's found a little bit of structure. I Mm -hmm. think the fact that they've been at home here all week, uh, they haven't had the practice time that Travis Green would have liked right off the hop of the season, but he did have an opportunity to get some practices in last week. And, and, you know, it sounds silly. These guys are pros. You wouldn't think that practice would make that much of a difference. But uh, when you get away from your game, you know, the only way to get out of it is to work through it. And so I do think the fact that the schedule has just eased on them a little bit and they were at home uh, in controlled surroundings, uh, they did look better, uh, certainly in both games against Calgary. But even the, the final game of the road trip against Toronto, when they lost 3-1, to one, they were really good for 40 minutes, but this team isn't good enough to play just 40 minutes, and the Leafs are a good enough team that they can show up for 20 minutes and win a hockey game, and you saw that a week ago. So there have been some steps in the right direction here, but this team is so far behind the eight ball now with the, the crappy start to the season that they have to string wins together. So a win on Saturday means nothing if they can't back it up with another one tonight. Very well said. He is Jeff Patterson, host of the VanCast podcast with The Athletic. Uh, Jeff, it always feels good, and it feels right when we get to hear from you on Canucks game day. Appreciate your time here, sir, and happy family day. What time? Are we back doing the pregame show tonight? <laughs> I will try and uh, make that happen and get the, uh, the right sponsors in place to make it so. Thanks for having me on, John. It was fun. You got it. That's uh, Jeff Patterson, uh, just one of the best in the business, uh, a voice that is a respected, appreciated, loved here in this market.
Uh, well, it was a cold weekend here in Metro Vancouver for the long weekend. I was uh, pretty much staying inside as much as possible. Uh, the thermostat turned all the way up. My apartment heating is not so great. But then we have to think about those who are far less fortunate and don't have a home to call and don't have a place where they can just easily turn up the heat. So with that in mind, one city councillor in Surrey is now calling on the city to open up new warming centres in civic buildings, saying the fact that there is nowhere for people to go if they are homeless to get away from this cold is wrong and deadly. With that in mind, we are now joined by that city councillor. It is Linda Annis here on 980 CKNW. Uh, Good afternoon, Linda. Thank you for giving us some time and happy family day. Happy family day to you. And uh, obviously, you know, this is an issue that's uh, near and dear to your heart. So uh, let us know exactly what's going on with, uh, with, with the city of Surrey and uh, what number of beds are actually available for those that are needing it. Well, it's a very, very unfortunate situation. As we all know, it's very, very cold out there. It's very wet. And can you imagine having to be out there 24-7, not being able to dry off? and have no access to washroom facilities. This is absolutely tragic. Right now, we have about 644 homeless folks in, in the city of Surrey, and that's uh, from, the la- la- sorry, from the latest homeless count that was done, which really up- probably underrepresents what the real reality is. Many, many of those folks are having to spend the night out on the street and during the day have no place to go to get warm. So what I'm asking the city to do is open up some of our civic buildings that aren't being used right now and let residents that don't have a place to go, uh, go in there, get warm, get something warm to drink, use the washroom facilities so that they can be as comfortable as possible. The next city council meeting is later this month and about a week from now, actually, on February 22nd. So you're asking for uh, the city to get involved more directly earlier than that meeting, because as we wait, uh, there's still cold weather on the forecast for the rest of this week. There could be people needing these services. This isn't something that we can wait for. Can you imagine a council meeting is a week away from now and then it still takes time to actually implement anything? Can you imagine being out on the street in this weather for another seven to ten days that's just not right we need to be doing better planning we need to be looking at this issue now in terms of making a plan for next year so we don't find ourselves in this situation again Mm -hmm. Uh, would you have an idea as to which buildings might be the best uh, the best for this kind of purpose We need them all around Surrey. As we know, many homeless folks uh, have no access to transportation. You know, they've got their belongings. They're very dear to them. And homeless people are all located throughout Surrey. So we need warming centers everywhere. Mm -hmm. Surrey is as big as Vancouver, Richmond, and and Surrey. Richmond and Burnaby combined, and if you can just imagine having to travel that far to get to some place that may or not be open, we need to have them throughout the city. Now, uh, the Attorney General and Housing Minister David Eby uh, did speak about the Pacific Coliseum, which, albeit it's not in the Surrey territory, but the reasons as to why the Coliseum is not being eligible for use as a warming centre, here's what he had to say about that when speaking with Global News. BC Housing did look at uh, the Pacific Coliseum, uh, and uh, it was their feeling that it was too far from essential services and, and critical um, uh, infrastructure to support people and staying inside. Um, so while it's not uh, currently on the list, certainly um, we're keeping an open mind in terms of sites because this is quite obviously an emergency. 
So obviously there needs to be essential services nearby, which I think would make it a bit of a challenge for most of those civic buildings, if I'm not mistaken. So perhaps that's one explanation as to why some of these buildings aren't being made available, if we're listening to what the minister says. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that all. If you're sick, you're wet, and you're out in the cold, the first priority needs to get you needs to be to get you indoors, get you dry, and get you feeling a bit better. Then I certainly agree with him. We need to have services to help people that are homeless. But the first and foremost, we need to deal with their immediate situation, which is getting them indoors to get warm. Certainly, I know a lot of recreational buildings and uh, centers, uh, uh, Surrey has so many of them all throughout uh, the city, that uh, there could be absolutely a, a reason, reasonable argument made in favor of using these and converting them into temporary shelters, because we're not talking about using this for six months at a time. We're talking about doing this for just about, uh, what is it, two weeks or three weeks, just so that we know these people that are the most, uh, you know, they're in the most dire and critical situations with the weather, they just need to find some place to temporarily to get away from the situation outside. Well, and many of, the, many of these people have a place to maybe sleep at night, but on many of the shelters that they're with aren't open during the day, so they have to vacate. So we need two types of, we need more, more places for people to be able to go and get a good night's rest, mm-hmm. but we also need spots for people to go indoors and be able to get warm, use the washroom facilities, and have a hot beverage and maybe a hot meal. From my understanding, you know, the city has 59 spaces for people to sleep during the winter and during extreme weather conditions. I mean, away from COVID-19, if this was any other year, I think most of us could agree, Councillor, that 59 is far short of what seems to be reasonable for a city the size of Surrey. It's, it's not reasonable, uh, COVID or not COVID, um, when you've got 644 homeless folks mm-hmm. and even more that haven't been counted in the last homeless count. It's hugely problematic to have that few number of beds. And is this something where the mayor, you know, if the public wanted to see more change, uh, the mayor would be the first person to maybe be able to enact some of these changes? Or does it indeed go through the city council? Well, it depends on what we're trying to do. I mean, I would ask and urge people to speak out. Uh, This is not right. There's parts of Surrey that have no access to homeless or shelters or or a place to get warm. it has to be a place that someone can get to easily. They aren't probably able to jump on buses and, you know, they don't have transit fare. So mm-hmm. how would they get there? They don't have cars or any other sense of transportation. So we need to make sure that these folks are well taken care of so that they can get healthy, not continue to get sick and be able to uh, get on the road to, uh, you know, getting some help to get them back, you know, into to housing again. And and one final thought, and we appreciate you giving us some time here. Um, You know, recreational centers and civic buildings are usually positioned in high residential areas. So there will be maybe those who live in certain communities with these rec centers that are being looked at for possible uh, shelter spaces that will say, well, we don't necessarily want this in our neighborhoods because we have children, we have, uh, you know, old people, we have people that are vulnerable. We don't necessarily feel that it would be the safest thing to do, especially during COVID-19. Well, that's just so wrong. There's homeless people throughout Surrey. There's homeless people in, you know, uh, high-income housing close by and living in parks. They're they're located throughout Surrey. Uh, It's not isolated to one area. Homeless people are everywhere. They're living in the woods. They're living in the parks. They're looking for any place where they can get a little bit of shelter. So I think we all have to 
do our part mm-hmm. to help these people who have found themselves in a very unfortunate situation. She is uh, Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis uh, calling on the city to act quickly and get more uh, emergency beds available for those that are needing it the most. Uh, city Councillor, thank you so much for giving us some time here today and happy Family Day. Happy Family Day to you too. Thank Take you very care. much. Yeah, you got it. That's uh, Linda Annis, of course, uh, talking about the concerns that she is uh, feeling right now with the uh, the number of beds and the lack of when it comes to the homeless situation in Surrey and the fact that we are still maybe on the back end, the tail end, but it's still very cold outside. This whole cold, cold snap uh, that's still trickling its way across the lower mainland. Myself, I am not a parent. That being said, I've spoken to many parents over the past number of months uh, who have shared their concerns with what is happening with their children at school. And, uh, of course, this has to do with COVID-19 and whether or not uh, they feel the level of uh, safety measures and protocols are good enough for their children. Some feel it's okay the way it is, it is right now. Others feel strongly that there needs to be more restrictions, more rules, and more mandatory masks in order for their concerns to be at least taken care of. So here we are now connecting with another parent who wants to share their concern. Uh, because this is such a contentious issue and uh, there's there's always a lot of talking and conversations happening online. We have chosen to keep the name of this parent anonymous, but I do want to welcome her onto the show. And I say thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. You got it. Now, one thing that we can share is that uh, your daughter is an elementary school student and attends Colchena Elementary School here in Vancouver. And the reason that you're calling us today is because obviously there's some things on your mind that are worrying you as a parent. Whenever you have to feel like you have to send your daughter to school, uh, there's going to be a level of concern, one that I can't understand as a non-parent. So I'll I'll stop talking here and I'll let you share with us what is on your mind. Um, There is a lot of safety issues that we feel scared about. We actually didn't send her until Monday, um, and the school had its first exposure of the year um, on Monday and Tuesday, um, the whole week, I guess. But we kept her home because my husband has a heart condition, so Mm. she only went for two weeks in October. Sending her back for that two weeks took her off of the option for transition that she was on. So they said she couldn't go back into option four transition. So we've just had her home and no one does any checks with her or anything like that. She's just basically out of the system. But they said that she can come back when she wants to and that she can keep her spot there in French immersion. So we've been teaching her at home. um, And then we decided this week because they've been posting lower and lower numbers that maybe it was safe to send her back. And so when we sent her back, um, it was Monday, and then on Tuesday, she was exposed to COVID within her class. Um, the school had information. They knew that her brother, or sorry, her sister, um, was in the school and was also sick. And they, public health instructs you to send the other sibling to school. Right. Even though you're waiting for a test result from a sibling that has symptoms. Like, that needs to change with the new variant. It's more contagious. Why would we still be sending a sibling to school that is living in the same house as a COVID patient? Like, it really doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, to, to, to so, confirm that, you know, when, when we heard about the uh, 
uh, the big threat and the big scare in Maple Ridge just a few weeks ago, it was the same thing where some students were asked to take a rapid test, and yet family members of those students or staff members were told, yeah, it's okay, send your siblings to school or wherever they need to go for the day because apparently that is safe to do so. It just doesn't seem to make any sense. No, I don't know if they think we're all living in mansions here in Vancouver, but a lot of people live in close quarters, and you can't keep kids from away from each other. It just doesn't work that way. My sister was told to keep a two-year-old away from a four-year-old. Like, is, who's going to parent if she's a single parent? Mm-hmm. It just it doesn't make sense in the real world. Maybe it does on paper to them. I don't know. But it's causing us a lot of grief now because my child was exposed. There's no mask mandate for a five-year-old. So... The teacher, even though I've instructed her to put a mask on my child, says, no, I can't do that because there's no mask mandate for your kid's age. Mm. But they can put a coat on my kid to go outside. Like, that does not make any sense to me. Right. How can you put a coat on a kid for safety, but you can't put a mask on them for safety? And your daughter, you know, how is she feeling? Obviously, she's uh, she's young, so she might not have a full understanding, perhaps, of of what exactly is happening. But I'm sure for her... Uh, it can't be easy to, to go in and then out of school and then having to deal with all this right now. It's very confusing for her because here we are telling her it's safe and sending her there and saying, you just have to wear this mask and you'll be safe. But then it's not safe. It's not safe at all because now we're sitting here isolating, even though we haven't been told to isolate, we still have had no contact, even though my daughter spent six hours with this child on the exposure day. But really, she spent more time with them because who knows if it's exactly five days. Mm-hmm. They don't know that. I don't think exactly. So, um, yeah, she's been exposed. And because she didn't have her mask on, I watched her. I live across from the school. So I watched her take off her mask at the playground. And I stopped myself. And I feel very guilty about it now. I stopped myself from running over there and putting that mask back on her. Mm-hmm. Because then she went back into the school and got exposed to COVID. And... No one put a mask on her. No one kept her safe. Was and now your... my husband may have a real problem with this because he has a serious heart condition. Right. So, so that, that puts him in, in definitely the, uh, the more at-risk uh, grouping when it comes to those yeah. uh, you know, waiting on vaccines or just, just trying to get through COVID-19. Right. Uh, was your daughter and asked to undergo a test or has that not been issued to your family? We haven't taken her for a test yet. Um, we actually, like, the way this is all trickled down is, is what is concerning and why I'm contacting is because these privacy issues with the teachers, they're causing delays and they're causing sickness to happen because the teacher, if she had told us on Tuesday that the sibling was exposed and was actually, sorry, not exposed, had COVID, mm-hmm. I would never have kept sending my daughter to school that week. But instead, I didn't know that, so I kept sending her. So even though they pulled the other sibling on Wednesday, she was still there with all the kids that had been exposed to him for I don't know how many days prior. And I could have pulled her and had no exposure maybe, but I haven't even been told to isolate. So the only way I've been found out about any of this is because the parents took it upon themselves to email me and the rest of the class. The teachers have sent out like a warning to everyone just saying like, hey, a member of our community, school community has tested positive. They don't tell you the grade. They don't tell you anything except that. Then the parents emailed us. So we knew, oh, the sibling is actually in our class. So we actually have to worry. 
these kindergartners play with the other kindergarten class at lunch. There's 55 of them playing together mm-hmm. and some of the grade ones. They don't even know. They don't even know right now. Kilchenna Division 22 has, an expo- has a COVID patient in it. They don't even know that. And their kids have been playing with them all week outside. So right now, I I, I don't know. I'm sorry to interrupt. I I feel like, you know, the the big concern for you is not so much the issue of mandatory masks, which has been contentious, although I'm sure you are in support of there being mandatory mask policies. But really, the sense I'm getting from you is transparency. There needs to be more transparency and upfront honesty to parents and students and staff members so that everyone can make informed decisions. Exactly. If you want to tell us our kids are safe, then the teachers need to be able to get that information out to the parents quickly. We can't wait. Like they, they haven't even told us to isolate. That's what's crazy to me. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm isolating because that's what we are doing. But if we weren't, we would be out there, and we might be spreading COVID to people, and we wouldn't even. No one is just. I don't know. It's just not being handled properly. I don't think for the new variant. Right. It's, they need to do more. I hear other provinces are doing more, and I think they need to change some things because obviously. This isn't working. Yeah, it's 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 definitely anyway. feeling it feels risky. Uh, I'll put it that way. And uh, I do appreciate you giving us some time and, and wanting to talk about this. But before we let you go, um, you know, oh, assuming... yeah, I have one more thing. Oh yeah, yeah, please. I'm sorry. This is important. There's only been one exposure day listed on the government site for a Kilchenna school. It says February 9th. Now we got a letter right from the school, and there's. The exposure dates are the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th. That's seven days. Mm. They're missing six of the exposure dates on our public health website. Right. I mean, obviously, that's been an issue as well. People haven't found all the most up-to-date information on those websites, which is, I mean, logically, you would think that's the top number one source to get the most accurate information. Well, that's where people are supposed to be finding out, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and again, it goes to show why the uh, citizen-sourced information like the BC School COVID Tracker Facebook page has become such a popular option because they work diligently to try and keep as much updated information as possible and provide it to the public. Uh, that being yeah. said, uh, b- before we let you go, and uh, like I said, I appreciate that you're willing to talk about this today on Family Day of all days. Um, yeah, well, that's a good day to do it. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, do Now that this has happened, uh, what is the plan for you and your daughter with, with the fact that she went back to school after doing the Option 4 process and, and now there's there's this? So do you feel like it's still safe to send your daughter back to school no. or, or, or have you decided on that just now? Oh, no, uh, we won't be sending her back, especially with the way this is handled. Like, they just... They're not, they didn't let us know, mm-hmm. they, you know, they and lost how could trust. I just send her? Yeah. I totally, totally lost my trust. Yeah. All right. Well. Yeah. It's sad that we'll teach her at home. She's only in kindergarten and you know, this is only for a little while. So if we all do it for a little while, it'll be a little while, mm-hmm. but it'll be okay. I know that she'll be okay. She has a sister. She'll have socialization it's really in the long run, not that big of a deal, but having long haulers or, you know, just live in your brain and come out later, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it for us. Very well said. I do appreciate you giving us some time here today and talking about this. Thank you. All right. I hope that parents can let each other know. 
Indeed. And I think uh, that's probably the best thing for parents right now. More communication. If you're not receiving it from those that you're trusting to give you that information, certainly crowdsourcing all that data like the BC School COVID Tracker Facebook page uh, has been doing for months and months and months and trying to make sure that there is uh, relevant, up-to-date information so that you can make those informed decisions. Now, you may recall just around eight years ago, Elisa Lam, a 21-year-old UBC student, went on a trip down to California. She spent some time in San Diego. And in Los Angeles, she tragically passed away. The circumstances around her death were, for several days and weeks, quite a mystery. And now, if you were to look on your Netflix Canada catalog, you will see that the number one trending show and series right now is something called Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, and it features the death and passing of Elisa Lam. Take a listen to the trailer here. What do you think people imagine when they picture the Cecil Hotel? Is there a room here that maybe somebody hasn't died in? I never got used to that. Never got used to that. Throughout its history, the Hotel Cecil has always had a dark persona. People call it... Hotel Death. This was a place where serial killers let their hair down. Like Richard Ramirez, who would come back covered in blood, and no one's got a problem with that. As mentioned, it's the number one trending series in Canada's Netflix library right now. And many people, obviously, with that evidence, have enjoyed this series. They've watched a ton of it. It's a four-part mini-documentary series. But now some concerns being raised online and from certain film critics who say this is exploiting the tragic death of somebody who is suffering from mental illness and really exploiting the entire story to get high reviews and ratings. With that in mind, we are now joined by our good friend Steve Stebbing. He is a movie connoisseur and critic. You can find him online at the Steve Old Dead on Twitter or through his website, stevestebbing.ca, and a regular on The Shift, our network show. Steve, always great to talk with you. Uh, thanks for having me, John. You got it. Now, obviously, you know, this show uh, is immensely popular based on the fact that it's the mm-hmm. number one trending thing on Netflix Canada. So I'll ask you now, what, what were your thoughts when you went through the four part series uh, detailing Elisa Lamb's tragic passing away? Well, I, I mean, I uh, I wasn't hugely knowledgeable on the actual case. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I thought it was uh, I mean, for the first couple episodes, I thought it was uh, very interestingly told. Uh, and, and gives almost uh, like a, a a just like a, a massively deep uh, enigma to what exactly happens. I mean, in the first episode, you get the full tape, uh, the last uh, known footage of Elisa Lam, and it sets up uh, a, a deeper mystery than I think is what the final result is. Uh, I can definitely see why it's polarizing, especially when you start bringing uh, quote unquote YouTube investigators into it, which I always think is a dicey, a dicey line and a dicey way uh, of presenting quote unquote professionals. Uh, So, I mean, I see both sides of the coin on this. 
Yeah, pardon me. It's interesting because uh, when they go through this series, at first they present you with the detectives that were assigned mm-hmm. to the case, and it feels like you know on on their perspective, they're just trying to be upfront and honest what the process looked like. They talk about how there was a different incident in L.A. also happening at the time, which led to a bunch of detectives actually being pulled off the case, and there ultimately only being what two or three officers that were still left investigating the missing case file, which was what it was at that time with Elisa Lamb. And then, of course, there's the hotel general manager who apparently, based on what she said in this documentary, and for full transparency, I've seen the first three episodes. I haven't seen the full thing just yet. But the hotel general manager even said she has had so many requests over the years, but she wanted to do this one, I would assume, because she wanted to set the record straight. Yeah, and I would assume that it's it's also uh, has to come to the fact that Joe Berlinger put the, uh, together this documentary, and he's no slouch. I mean, he did uh, the, uh, the the Ted Bundy tapes for Netflix uh, a while back. He even did the Zac Efron movie as well as as kind of like an addendum to that. Um, but I mean, he is a deep uh, documentary filmmaker. I mean, uh, completely different than that. He did the Metallica documentary, Some Kind of Monster, but he also did the Paradise, uh, the uh, Paradise Lost about the Memphis Five. So he is uh, a well-known document a documentarian. He's a guy that that is trusted in his field. So uh, I mean, it, it's kind of like a no-brainer when they're like, "Well, Joe Berlinger wants to talk to you and wants to." develop this thing about the place that you work in. Well, heck yeah, you're going to jump on that opportunity. Is it telling, though, the fact that of all the people they interviewed, and you mentioned they even talked to the YouTube investigators Mm -hmm. and all this, we never heard from Elisa Lam's family. They never got a single interview with her mother or her Mm -hmm. father or anybody else in that family. And that should be maybe a red flag to those who are watching it. That is the that's where the exploitative nature uh, that people are, are are raising the red flags with comes through to it because it's almost like they're sensationalizing Elisa's story without um, validating it, and that is the biggest issue, especially when you're de- dealing with true crime, which people eat up uh, with giant spoons on on Netflix. That's where this one's missing, and that's where uh, I mean. Uh, understandably, the controversy lies because then we don't really get a, a, a look into what Lisa's family life was like, what her psyche was like heading into it, we, uh, what her battles with depression were like. We have nothing. We only have really just sporadic points of hearsay here and there. And uh, it's not really until the final episode where they do eventually reveal that Elisa had unfortunately been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and depression. So as you mentioned, she was on different medications and, uh, there, you know, there's an explanation as to why maybe she was acting the way she did in some of the surveillance camera footage. But they don't share those details at the beginning. It, it feels like it would have made more sense, at least to me, Steve, if they were upfront about that fact at the beginning and then still have all the context of the YouTube investigators and et cetera so that they can can at least be um, mindful that this is somebody's life we're talking about here. Absolutely. And what it does end up setting up, and, and, and I won't give any spoilers here, but I just will say what it does set up is uh, a continuing spiral into diminishing returns, especially if you're looking for a crime documentary series like this one doesn't have the sensationalism of like a making a murderer or the, the uh, night stalker documentary that just came out about Richard Ramirez. Like it, it leaves you wishing that we'd gone down a different path with a different story possibly because there are so many different stories uh, within the Cecil hotel that they could have, 
latched onto, mm-hmm. like the aforementioned Richard Ramirez stuff. He did frequent that hotel. But instead, we go down essentially something that turns out to be very much a dead end. Right. And But now we can't ignore the fact that it's the number one trending thing in Netflix mm-hmm. Canada's library. Uh, obviously, the producer that you mentioned, he's had immense success doing similar documentary series with true crime or sometimes fictional things. But then do we need to look at the way that Netflix as a whole just approaches these particular topics? Like, do we need Netflix to have some accountability knowing that the content you're pushing out sometimes will come at the expense of families that are probably still very much grieving about the death of their daughter eight years later? Yeah, I mean, there's like more of a regulation, sure, would be needed. But that's, I think, when it comes to the streaming services and creating sensational documentaries or even ones that maybe Netflix not producing themselves but purchasing as well uh yeah i mean there maybe there should be a a deeper regulation into it but some of these things they don't they don't really vet that one until it's out in the audience eye and then all of a sudden it becomes controversial so uh, i don't think uh us like us talking about it other media outlets talking about it I think it just kind of plays into subscribers, into Netflix subscribers and Netflix numbers going up because Mm -hmm. the people that haven't seen it are going to watch it now to see what everybody's talking about, what this exploitation that everyone is up in arms about. Like this does nothing but get more eyes on crime scene. Yeah, you might be right. I'm hoping that with this conversation that you and I are having today, that at least we're providing the full context so that those Mm -hmm. who go into this series, if they haven't watched it yet, uh, will at least be in the know as to the truth of Elisa Lam's mental illness. And there isn't any, you know, conspiracies or or wild theories that they need to be thinking too much about. It's, It's really the truth of what happened with Elisa. Again, a very tragic death. Our guest right now is Steve Stebbing. He is a film critic and a movie connoisseur. You can find him on Twitter at the Steve Dead or on his website, stevestebbing.ca. And he's also a regular contributor on The Shift, our nationally run program. And Steve, right now we're having a conversation about this new Netflix documentary series called Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. I just wanted to get your thoughts on this particular thing, because one of the most important narrative drivers of the entire documentary is the repeated use of Elisa's Tumblr. And the fact that she mm-hmm. kind of used it as a personal journal or a diary where she was detailing and sharing her personal thoughts, uh, kind mm-hmm. of sharing her itinerary for what her trip down in California was going to be like. And I'm wondering, you know, do we look at that and think that's highly inappropriate? Because although when she was alive, she made the decision to make her profile public, certainly mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people who might agree that say, well, when she passed away, there should have been a decision made on Tumblr's part or the producers of this documentary to not include those because it's kind of invading on her personal space. Yeah. And, you know, I think when it comes down to these investigative documentaries, and especially with the, the, the producers and the, the, the people that are putting it together, is if it's available, it's available. It becomes fair game. So, uh, the fact that Tumblr didn't make it private, and yeah, maybe that's on them, but I, I don't think it's on the documentarian's point apart because mm-hmm. if it's there for the taking, it's there for the taking. Uh, I, unfortunately, I think what we're everything that's missing from it is uh, above all context is is always missing with some of these entries. Uh, what Elisa's state of mind, especially when you get into to her bipolar uh suffering and everything like that 
um, what what her brain chemistry was at the mm-hmm. time. Again, that feeds into context as well. So uh, to take everything as black and white printed on the page, uh, factual evidence, that's not reality. Right. And like I mentioned earlier, for transparency's sake, I haven't seen the full documentary. I haven't mm-hmm. seen the fourth episode, which is where uh, it's the final episode. That's when mm-hmm. they revealed that she did have bipolar disorder and she was on yeah. medication. So I'm wondering, Steve, since you watched the full thing, uh, when they made that fact known and when the documentary came to an end, did you think or feel that the producers of that program um, at least raised awareness for the importance of checking our mental health. And, you know, if they're going to end the series this way, at least uh, letting us know that there's resources for people that might be suffering from these things. And uh, just reminding us that through this COVID-19 pandemic, our mental health is just as important as our physical health. Uh, I don't think that they did a, they did a, a job, a good enough job of relaying that uh, and, may, and maybe generalizing it to a wider audience that does deal with those issues. I think it's more used as a gotcha moment uh, for that fourth episode. Mm-hmm. Um, being that if they, if they would have weighed on, in on that on, the, on episode one and, and given you kind of the context of her, her mental history, then maybe, I mean, that initial video you saw wouldn't have come off as uh, so, uh, quote-unquote, creepy, or even, uh, I mean, in, in smaller points, just towards the, the behavior, quote-unquote, of the uh, elevator itself, supernatural. Like, mm. I think it would just, uh, I, I think it would uh, actually give it kind of like a, a more, more of a focus but I think that would have uh, taken away from the effect that I think that these that Joe Berlinger and his crew wanted you to feel uh, over these four episodes. Absolutely. And uh, you know what? Uh, they, I guess they're getting what they wanted. As mentioned ne- numerous times now, the number one trending option in Netflix Canada. Yep. And uh, even though conversations like this might be uh, discouraging, maybe some, some people from, from viewing it, certainly it seems many, many Canadians have already watched all four episodes. Steve, appreciate you giving us some time and some insight onto this documentary. We look forward to talking with you again. And of course, uh, look forward to hearing you on The Shift. Awesome. Thanks, John. You got it. That is Steve Stebbing, movie connoisseur and critic. You can find him on Twitter at the Steve Will Dead or through his website, Steve Stebbing. That's S-T-E-B-B-I-N-G dot C-A. Something that happened earlier today that is absolutely worth celebrating. Well, history was made at 6 a.m. Monday Mountain Time after 252 hours. Oh, my goodness. History made by the world's longest game. 40 players, nonstop consecutive hockey, $1.84 million raised, and that total continues to come up and up and up. And joining us now to talk about that experience is Andrew Buchanan. He's a player and fundraiser with the World's Longest Game, uh, also a trained firefighter. And Andrew, if I'm not mistaken, also a player that scored 62 goals during this World's Longest Game attempt. So congratulations to you, sir. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. You got it. I mean, take us through what that was like for you, because not only are we talking about uh, just, you know, a ridiculous amount of hockey, 252 hours consecutively like that, but you add on top the cold snap that was uh, being felt all across Canada, certainly up in Sherwood Park. So uh, how, how was it dealing with uh, so many games of hockey and, and just the weather conditions? You know, it's, it's, uh, it was an unbelievable feat uh we're kind of starting to call each other the frozen the hashtag frozen 40 for what we went through so uh 
that was weather like we've never felt. You know, we started out, uh, we weren't even sure if this game was going to happen with, with COVID restrictions. So, you know, right up until, you know, we entered the, the bubble, we weren't sure this game was going to happen. So, you know, players had to start isolating at home a week before the event. Then we got to the event. We had to uh, isolate for three days uh, by ourselves in our trailers. Had to have three more uh, consecutive negative uh, COVID swabs before we could even play. And then we saw the weather that kicked in. So um, what motivated us the most was, you know, when the polar vortex rolled in, you know, we were getting messages saying, you guys are crazy. There's no way you can do this. There's no way you guys will be able to battle through this weather. Um, and it just motivated all the boys even more. I mean, we were hitting uh, cold spells of one night. I was standing in nets. And it was minus 54 degrees Celsius. Wow. With 40 kilometer hour winds blowing at me. Uh, pucks were shattering. Sticks were breaking on impacts. Um, on my goalie mask, I had frost build up that I could barely see. I had probably close to five or six layers of clothes on, heated socks, heated gloves, you name it, and it still wasn't cutting it. Uh, you should see some of our feet. It looks like it was right out of a horror movie. So, uh, oh, yeah. It was an incredible feat by, by the guys, and it was uh, you know an absolutely uh, incredible event to be a part of, and can't say enough good things about it. Yeah, I mean, this is not the first time uh, such an event has taken place. It's really become an annual tradition there, uh, organized by Brent Sake and so many of the volunteers and organizers like yourself working behind the scenes to try and get this going each and every year. And the $1.83 million total that we're talking about uh, raised in support of cancer research in Alberta at the Cross Cancer Institute. So this is an excellent cause. One of the photos that I did see Andrew, was the balaclava. I'm not sure which player it was, but literally icicles forming all around the face of this poor player because of the conditions that you're talking about. Uh, You know, this might sound like a silly question, but was there ever a moment when you were out there dealing with the cold that maybe, just maybe, a slight moment of doubt creeped in and, you know, a thought ran ran around your mind saying, I don't know if we can finish this because it's just way too cold. You know, absolutely. You know, the, the the whole you know event is such an up and down, you know, emotional wise, right? And literally, what the only thing that carried us through was uh, the amazing support, right? So, if I don't know if you've seen pictures, and I can send you pictures after, but the entire rink is uh, covered with patients that have either lost their lives to cancer mm-hmm. or to patients that are currently battling cancer. So. You know, those middle-of-the-night shifts, you know, from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. was kind of definitely the toughest for us to get through uh, and the coldest. But um, what will be amazing is, you know, normally this event has thousands of fans that are watching. But this year, due to COVID, they could only drive through and honk their horns. And the support that we had from people from all hours of the morning, that's what kept us going. And uh, it, it was incredible support. And, you know, for me as a goalie, because uh, I played goalie and I played out in this event, as a goalie, uh, I only got to a break from the weather every hour. So every mm. hour I had to go out there, take the weather, and then come off with a Zamboni. And I'd get 10 minutes of, you know, rewarming, if you want to call it that, and I'd head right back out for another hour. And, you know, my shifts were, were a minimum of six hours. And in a day, I would do 12 to 16 days, or sorry, 12 to 16 hours easy on the ice. And it was unbearable at times. I'd be lying if I, <laughs> so I didn't say that. So. And as a goalie, pucks were literally hitting me and shattering. Oh, so it was yeah, un- unbelievable. I've never experienced anything like that. Oh, I bet not. And, and I don't know if you'll ever get to experience something like that again because uh, you know weather conditions change all the time. If you're doing this again next year, who knows if it'll get as low as what were you saying, minus fifty-eight or somewhere along along Min- that line. Minus fifty-four degrees. Yeah. And, and what, what really hit us the first few days? You know, we hit weather of 
you know, minus 30, and then it started creeping into the minus 40s. And then when that vortex really hit, it hit minus 50. Wow. But what really, really, really tested us was the wind. And the wind just would not go away. It was relentless. And in that so, sense, the, the, the sweat that you're working up, like that becomes an enemy because wind plus sweat equals chilliness. Absolutely. So it's a fine line with players, right? So you had to find that line that, you know, you were warm enough to, to take the elements, but also not too hot mm. um, to uh, start sweating. Because the second you start sweating out there, you'll flash freeze. So it's, it was a fine line each day of players trying to find uh, what was going to be the right amount of layers. But uh, we got through it. I mean, there's, you know, definitely some ugly injuries and some definitely ugly toes and ugly uh, <laughs> ugly feet out of this and uh, some very wind-burnt uh, frostbitten faces as well. But uh you know, the pitchers uh, speak for itself. It's what, what these guys went through. They're absolute warriors. But at the end of the day, it's nothing what people going through cancer or fighting. So that's what kept us going. You know those uh, toothpaste commercials where they might say, like, 9 out of 10 dentists recommend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure you yeah. would find nine doctors that would recommend you doing something like this with the conditions that you guys had to go through. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, have, uh, yeah. I have nothing Absolutely. but just, you know, uh, positive and compliments to you and the rest of the players that were involved. And for those that are wondering, uh, this is a game after all. So the final score, Team Red scored 2,649 goals. Team White yeah. scored 2,528. White actually outshot Team Red uh, with 10,253 shots to 9,996. So you were on Team Red. So with that in mind, obviously the biggest winners are those uh, the, the, the amount of money and the community for raising so much money for cancer research. But is there anything that Team Red now gets to enjoy because you did manage to win with the highest amount of goals? You know what? The score in this game didn't matter. There was only one goal in this game that counted, and that was to, to help end cancer. So um, you can see the crazy score. We'll, uh, we'll be honest, there wasn't a whole lot of defense out there in front of me, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, it was an absolute shooting gallery, and pucks at uh, you know that cold temperature do not feel good at all. So um, but we rallied, we got it done, and um, yeah, we raised the most money we've ever done in this game. Uh, mm. The game has been in tradition here in Sherwood Park uh, since 2003, so they have it every three years. And Dr. Sake uh, started this event as you know he lost was losing many uh, family members and friends to cancer, and he had actually promised his dad that he was he was going to find a way to beat this. So uh, every year that they host the event, they uh, pick a specific um, cancer-related uh, item to to um, to try and raise money for so this year was a brand new cancer drug that's supposed to be revolutionary hmm. in uh, cancer treatment and many 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 cancers that we face so what was really cool and just re- really canadian about this whole event is you know two uh university of alberta doctors um founded this drug and now you know 40 you know absolute crazy alberta hockey players played <laughs> in what was the coldest conditions on planet earth at one point we were getting texts from uh, the weather network and, you know, severe uh, health, health Canada warnings say, you know, five to ten minutes outside in this weather can cause severe frostbite. <laughs> but uh, we were out there for 10 to 12 hours, so <laughs> we got it done. You got it done. And at the end of the day, you not only got it done, but you made history yet again, uh, over 252 hours. So the next attempt will be in 2024, if it's happening every three years, where I'm sure you're looking at even larger numbers and uh, more hours played. You know, I had the chance to speak with Brent, the organizer who, um, as you mentioned, had lost so many family members tragically in such a short period of time, which is what inspired him to create this event and this tradition. And uh, although it's it's such a heartbreaking story to hear what happened to him and his 
family. In a way, it's a silver lining that it happened because he's able to now turn such a heartbreaking and challenging experience and turn it into something that is miraculously here that is changing lives and I would say even saving lives, Andrew. So there's... Absolutely. Dr. Steak is uh, one of the most incredible, driven, motivated individuals I've ever met in my life. So um, to host this event, to have all all of us out there mm-hmm. in a, in a non COVID year. This is this fall. This event takes 800 volunteers. They did it this year in 10, 10 wow. volunteers. Wow. But this whole event on, and that's because that's all we could have in the bubble. And this event would not have even come close to happening without the amazing work of those 10 volunteers. So they're the real heroes in this and, you know, helping us get through it. Very well said. It might take you three years just to get back to a level of warmth of room temperature from the conditions that you were playing in. But three years from now, we anticipate another record setting performance from you and the players involved with the world's longest game. Andrew, thank you so much for giving us some time here. And again, a job well done to you and the rest of the players and all the volunteers who managed to make history yet again. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just one more thing. Uh, The unique part about this event is we have... uh, we rival a team in Buffalo, New York, that uh, tries to break the record. So every year, um, you know, we both raise the money for the same event, and, you know, we're allies in the, in, you know, the fight against cancer. But normally they do this game inside, so we definitely set the bar higher ah. this year. And we're not letting them beat our world record unless it's outside. So those boys have to answer, and uh, we'll see what they do. But uh, I dedicated my cause to uh, first responder cancer, as uh, cancer is the number one killer of firefighters. So, uh mm-hmm. I was proud to uh, dedicate this game to everyone out there, um, you know, to anyone who's fighting cancer, but specifically all the first responders out there that are battling cancer. So uh, that one was for you. What I went through is nothing what you're fighting, and um, donations are still up on our page. I can give you guys the link uh, for a week still. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. It was an incredible event, and um, to all those fighting cancer, never give up. Awesome. Your back. Yeah, he is Andrew Buchanan, player and fundraiser and indeed a trained firefighter who's uh, letting us know you can still make donations at worldslongestgame.ca. Again, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. I'm going to go back in the hot tub now. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> yeah, you deserve it. Don't get out of that. Uh, make sure you get some meal service on the way. We'll be connecting with Dan McTagg. He's the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy because gas prices are once again quite high across the lower mainland. We're looking at $1.39 in Surrey. And it seems this could not just be the uh, the end and the peak but maybe a sign of higher prices to come, and a lot of that related to COVID-19. But why and why are Canadians always having to pay a little bit more at the pumps? For that, we are now joined by Dan McTagg. He's the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, thank you for joining us today, and happy Family Day. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a great day to be here and enjoying time with family. Hope you get to do the same as well, John. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the weather, it's beautiful out there. The cold snap finally <laughs> over. But uh, just when we thought we could celebrate everything, well, if you got to fill up your gas tank today, it's not going to be an easy or affordable option. And yet, that's what we're looking at. $1.40 in Surrey, that seems to be the price that people are fixated on. And uh, from what you understand, it doesn't seem like it's going down before it gets uh, you know any higher, really. No, John, it's, uh, these are prices we haven't seen. You'd have to go back to March 7th, uh, 2020, so almost a full year. The last time we saw prices here in the lower mainland, Vancouver, uh, tiptoe above $1.40. Uh, by tomorrow morning, most gas stations will start off at $1.40.9. So the $1.35, $1.33, you're seeing at many stations. Uh, if you need fuel this week, uh, do plan to pick it up because it's uh, not likely to fall anytime soon. There is a overseas market rally as well 
which uh, saw gasoline move up about two cents, three cents a liter. So safe bet that by Wednesday or Thursday, as I was uh, talking to your colleague Janet Brown here from CKNW a little earlier in the week, we could be at a dollar forty-three, a dollar forty-four, likely by Thursday or Friday. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, a bit of a bit of a hesitation there. But as we head towards summer, dollar sixty, dollar sixty-five. Mm will be the new normal, perhaps even above that. Well, it's interesting, Dan, because I remember earlier in uh, during the pandemic, gas prices were actually surprisingly low, and it was a welcome sight. I remember the last time I've seen anything around like a dollar ten, dollar eleven was back in 2017 when I was living in Cranbrook for a short summer, my little summer camp yep. in the East Kootenay. I haven't seen prices like that since really the beginning of the pandemic, and so clearly low prices can be obtained. So, what's preventing Canadians from enjoying those prices now? Well, you're right. I, my best friend lives in uh, in Kimberley, so I, I, oh, I beautiful place. To talk to you. Yeah. He keeps he keeps yammering about how great prices <laughs> were, and that's sort of, of course, being the uh, the emphatic word. Uh, look, uh, a number of factors are driving up prices. Demand in the United States, especially driven by uh, the appearance, at least down there, that they're starting to get past uh, the COVID uh, period. The pandemic uh, vaccinations are rolling out, and that's giving. Plenty of uh, confidence and, in fact, uh, suggestions that demand for fuel uh, is beginning to rise again, uh, rising above the uh, pre-COVID uh, period. So back to February, even uh, January of 2020. In fact, the national gas price for Canada right now is uh, pushing towards $1.16, $1.16.5. Those are prices as a national average we haven't seen uh, since October of uh, 2019. So things are getting back to normal, but there's a few differences this time. Um, demand uh, is likely to be a lot higher, and it will uh, come back very quickly, meaning more, you know, uh, more demand from refineries. Uh, oil prices now pushing above $60 a barrel for West Texas Intermediate, even our own WCS, Western Canadian Select which we use here to mix for most of our gasoline here in the lower mainland, uh, that's over $50 a barrel. Uh, Brent, uh, $65 a barrel. You can pretty much get the understanding that uh, the world economy is starting to pick up steam and with it uh, Mm -hmm. prices. Of course, we have to be mindful of the fact that here in the lower mainland, you pay as a jurisdiction among the highest taxes, in fact, the highest taxes on gasoline anywhere in North America. So that always contributes to the price. John, when I do my two, three-day predictions looking out, I have to look at what the market's doing in the Pacific Northwest because that's the market we rely upon. And then I have to add 45.89 cents a litre. That's all the federal provincial taxes mm-hmm. plus GST. So you're on a day like today, you're about uh, 51, 52 cents on every litre of gasoline is tax uh, for everything from transportation, provincial tax, uh, municipal tax, as well, of course, as the GST uh, and, of course, uh, the carbon taxes. Yeah, the taxes definitely add up. And uh, we know that's been hitting Canadians, especially here in the Lower Mainland, for a very long time. Seems like that's not going away anytime soon. But one thing that also uh, sets or at least helps set the price of gas and and oil and petroleum is the OPEC, the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries. And I'm just wondering if maybe because the United States, uh, there's a new presidential administration now in place with Joe Biden. Is this part of just like a negotiating tactic to try and get uh, a relationship? up and going with the new administration, or is this kind of unrelated to that? Well, it's not very related to what Mr. Biden is doing, President Biden, um, and we're not certainly getting comments uh, by, by uh, Twitter mm-hmm. uh, every few days uh, when gas prices were starting to get very high from the previous president. So that's changed a little bit. To, to be sure, Saudi Arabia no longer sells oil. 
uh, to the United States. That's a bit of a shocker. That's because the United States has become rather self-sufficient, and of course, with its uh, help from Canadian oil uh, producers, uh, they haven't really had to rely on much uh, in the way of international imports. They do import, to be sure, but they export a lot more than they're importing, at least as far as that is concerned, with the real wild card being Canada's ability to sell oil. That, of course, leaves a big head-scratcher as to why Biden would have cancelled the uh, Keystone XL pipeline. Mm-hmm. It's more of a, a metaphor to opposition to pipelines in general rather than that specific pipeline, which is quite necessary for a lot of the U.S. refiners. But in terms of price, Saudi Arabia has decided to remove uh, 1 million barrels a day uh, wow. off the market. By doing that, they've helped support and prop up the uh, the market. Uh, how long that will last? We're probably looking at three to six months. But as I said earlier, I think demand is going to become increasingly a bigger part of the picture. That's why we will be looking at dollar to a dollar sixty-five as we head towards the uh, warmer, uh, warmer summer months. And of course, that'll only encourage consumers here to start thinking more and more about electric vehicles because that's one way you can avoid the the you know p- paying the price at the pumps is to just ride electric. And although it's not a perfect <laughs> system, at least it doesn't mean you have to pay a dollar sixty yeah. if it gets to that in the summer. Not so sure it's working in places like Texas where there is no electricity. Right. And, uh, <laughs> but of course, you have an advantage in Vancouver. You can simply drive down south of the border uh, and save a lot of money. Uh, the reality is that there's only you know really a limited uh, you know number of people who will make that option, even though it may be subsidized. Uh, it comes down to real efficiency, and as you mentioned in Cranbrook, I mean when you see a difference in gas prices, mm-hmm. those are 16, 17 cents a liter because of the difference in taxes. You know, you can really do a lot with EVs in downtown Vancouver. Not so great if you're trying to make your way up uh, uh, some of the major highways over a period of three or four you know, hours with, uh, with very little in the way of, uh, of uh, warm temperatures. So yeah. it really comes down to the consumer. Right now at this point, uh, EVs make sense in certain circumstances. But generally speaking, there's a reason why there hasn't been a big uptake across Canada or across North America yet. Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, it's not a perfect system, and certainly there's some disadvantages that people need to be aware of. Uh, Again, it's not just uh, favoring one side just for the sake of it, but uh, taking a look at the bigger picture overall and trying to determine, hey, if you can make an informed decision, that's really the best uh, ideal scenario out of here. Dan, appreciate you giving us some time here. I hope that gas prices won't be as high as you're predicting, but uh, at this point, maybe we should keep our expectations low and uh, just remember, um, you know, you got to keep that wallet close by if it comes to the summer. Absolutely. Keep our fingers crossed. Thanks for having me today, John. You got it. That is Dan McTague, president of uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy.